0: I would ask that you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Tonight on this occasion of uh, an ordination service, uh, we are looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read the close of this chapter, verses 24 to 29. This is in many ways Paul's defense of his own ministry. We see him uh, from time to time writing to uh, the Romans, uh, to the Galatians, I'm sorry, to the uh, to the Corinthians, to the Colossians, other places in the New Testament defending what it is that he does as a minister of the gospel. And it seemed appropriate tonight to look together uh, at these words as we consider what it is the Lord is calling Andrew to do and how he calls us to lift him up in prayer and encouragement in the Lord. And so we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, God's word tonight reading verses 24 to 29. And before we read these words, Please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon them. O glorious Lord and giver of all good gifts, we thank you for this, your living word. pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see and to understand it, that we would know more than what it means for a man to be a pastor, that we would know what it means for us to follow you and to trust in you as our Lord and Savior. Help us to see Christ here in this passage. Help us to see the mystery revealed among the saints. Help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in all the sufferings you have appointed for us as we follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, now I would ask that you would stand together with me, with me as we give attention to the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Hear God's word as we find it in the letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Amen. And thus, and the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together tonight. You may be seated. I have, uh, I've never preached an ordination service, but <laughs> as I've prepared this week, I couldn't help but compare an ordination sermon to a wedding sermon. There are a lot of similarities. Family flies in from out of state very often, and friends gather to hear the vows and the pronouncements. And before we get to the good part that everybody's waiting for, there is this, uh, this sermon. In many people's minds, hopefully, a short one. And in some ways, and in the excitement, the pastor, I think, is tempted to preach exactly what the congregation may be looking for. He's tempted to preach a sermon that's all about, in a wedding, about the happy couple, or at an ordination, all about the pastor. I like think in some ways it's worse at a wedding, actually, uh, because the the couple is standing there right in front of you the whole time, and if you want to say anything meaningful to the congregation, you've got to you got to preach past them, and so it almost feels like one more uh, one more session of premarital counseling with a hundred people listening in. And uh, the, the temptation here uh, tonight is to focus all of our attention on Andrew to focus all of our attention on what he's being called to and to make this like one more private conversation that you might get to eavesdrop on. As I recently reminded some of our newlyweds, a wedding isn't about the bride and groom. Marriage is a public ceremony because marriage is a public relationship. And the couple live out their vows on display in a community and so too for ordination. Our service tonight isn't simply a private ceremony for Andrew and for his family. This is, first of all, a worship service. And God's people have gathered together to glorify Christ our Savior, to come and to celebrate our Savior and the power of his resurrection. And as we celebrate our risen Lord, we celebrate also the God who raises up men into ministry. And that is at least as public as any marriage. The pastor is a public person, a public figure. He lives his life, he fulfills his ministry in full view of the context of a community. In fact, without the community, there really isn't a point to the pastor. You can be a lot of things without a community. You can be a scholar, you can be a guru, you can be a theologian without a congregation. But in order to be a pastor, you need a people. There are sheep that have no shepherd, but the same is not true in reverse. I think that's why Paul so often pauses in his letters to educate the church on the role of the pastor. Not just so the candidates know what they're getting into, although that's part of it. But also so that the people of the church would know what to expect and how to pray for the men that God is choosing to call into ministry. it's significant, I think, that tonight Andrew is not being ordained with 50 other men that he doesn't know somewhere in some secluded denominational headquarters in some other state where we'll never see it happen. Andrew's being ordained here by men he knows. Among people he has come to love in this church. He's being ordained here because this church, this community, is going to be the context in which his ministry takes shape. And we all ought to know what to expect of him. And Andrew, you ought to know the priorities that will give your ministry purpose. you also need to know how to preach a three-point sermon. So, we're going to look together uh, with Paul tonight uh, at three non-negotiables of faithful Christian ministry. And I'll give you a heads up that, uh, that the priorities of ministry, it's all about what God is doing for his people through his pastors. It's all about God's calling on you, Andrew. It's about his message through you, and it's about his power in you. Now, Paul begins with God's calling. You know, one of the other uh, similarities between a marriage ceremony and an ordination ceremony is the temptation to preach that sermon uh, and to make it overly optimistic. Uh, you want the uh, the fledgling couple to imagine a friction-free relationship. And you want the pastor to imagine that ministry is going to be nothing but uninterrupted joy. It's going to be full of encouragement. It's going to be full of of conversions. It's going to be full of fellowship with God's people. And this is another place that Paul helps us out, actually, uh, because uh, almost universally, when Paul describes his own ministry, he uses language related to suffering. That's the case here as well. Those two concepts seem to be inseparable in Paul's mind, ministry and suffering. He tells us here that he is suffering on behalf of the Colossians. He's suffering uh, for their sake. He's doing his part, he says, to fulfill, to complete the full number of afflictions that God has appointed for Christ's body, that is the church, while they are on earth. You can read the itemized list in 2 Corinthians of all the other uh, sufferings that Paul endured. Paul says there that he was persecuted and perplexed and afflicted and struck down, says that he faced beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and hunger. And now, as Paul writes these words, he is in prison in Rome, or at least somewhere in prison on his way to that city. And he's imprisoned precisely because he has had the gall to preach the message of Jesus Christ to nations outside of Israel. He is suffering for the Gentiles because of his ministry to the Gentiles. And he's in good company. the history of God's church is full of men, faithful pastors, who have led their congregations through letters written from a jail cell. Think of Bunyan. Think of Bonhoeffer. Think of the the countless uh, untold numbers of pastors who have disappeared into the, the work camps in North Korea, who are currently disappearing into places like China. Ministry often means hardship. It means suffering. It means imprisonment or sword. And who's to say what kinds of hardships Andrew will suffer if the Lord should grant him 40 years in the pulpit? I realize that we don't live in North Korea. We don't live in a place like China, but we live in New England. We live in New England in the 21st century, and we all know that this is not the place where Andrew is going to be received in the larger community as an invaluable asset. In our tiny little circles, pastors are respected. But in society, especially in our larger society, maybe pastors are tolerated. Maybe they're ridiculed. Maybe they're opposed. I find that, that when I meet somebody new and I begin to strike up a conversation and I talk to them and everything is going well for a while, and then that inevitable question that I'm trying to delay for the entire time, they say, So what do you do? And I go, so I'm a minister. They go, oh, okay, and that's it. That's the end of the conversation. That's how, that's how pastors are treated very often in New England. But that's okay. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. There's no reason, there, there's no room to, to whine in ministry because you've been disliked by the culture or you've been, you've been trolled on social media or even if you, you happen to be the target of, of hate speech legislation aimed at biblical views, views of morality. There's no room for that sort of thing because the reality is that on some level, gospel ministry involves suffering for the sake of God's people. That's the calling. And so Paul told Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He told his son in the faith to share in suffering. While he himself was, was even rejoicing in it, that's what. He says here, that's his approach to suffering. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, he says. Not suffering for the sake of of suffering. Not suffering as some sort of weird masochism because he just likes to be disliked. Suffering for the church. Suffering on behalf of God's people. Affliction on behalf of the church. He rejoices in that kind of hardship because it was part of God's calling on his life. Remember Saul on his way into Damascus on the road there. And the Lord appeared to him in a flash of light, and he spoke to him, and he took him from being a persecutor to a preacher of the gospel. And then he led him into that city further in, and he, he spoke to Ananias, and he told Ananias about the call that he was putting on, on Saul's life. And this is what he said, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer. The sake of my name. And I think everywhere that Paul went and every suffering that he endured, he remembered the weight of that call. I think it was that call that made his suffering tolerable. Again, not not because he just liked being disliked, not not because he he wanted to be persona non grata in the in the first century world. He he remembered this and it made it, it, made it uh, tolerable, it made it even joyful because his suffering was a sign that God's stewardship was being fulfilled in his ministry. And so every hardship that he faced was a gospel witness that the Lord had set him apart to make the word of the cross known to his feeble body. It was God's call upon Paul that made his suffering joyful. He says in verse 25 that he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him for the church. This was his calling. Not something that he took up for himself, but something that was given to him. In our culture, the idea of a calling is is constantly being sold to us as something that's tantamount to a triumph. We're told to find our calling. We're told to pursue our calling as though it were some sort of a lost puppy that needs to be rescued. But when we talk about ministry, the word about calling, it shouldn't be find or pursue. The word really is submit. That's what Paul had to do. The Lord called him, and it was up to Paul faithfully to submit to what the Lord had called him to, even though it meant suffering, even though it meant going maybe in places that he might not choose to go. He had to realize that God's Plan for his life, his calling for his ministry was greater than Paul's own ambitions for himself, and so he had to submit to God's calling. Now, admittedly, very few, if any, other pastoral calls are just like Saul of Tarsus's. You know, in Reformed churches, our theology of ministry focuses on what we call an internal call and an external call. That means when we discern, If a man is being called in the ministry, we don't wait for a flash of light and a a voice from heaven. Uh, We look to the means that the Lord uses today. We look for that internal call, that sense of tug on, on a man's heart by the Holy Spirit that he himself feels a desire to go into the ministry knowing what it entails. And we also listen to hear the voice of his visible church speaking to affirm the call of the man being raised up. And today that voice is going to sound in all of your ears. Today, Andrew is going to be set apart for service by an act of God through his visible church. And today, Andrew, God's external call is placed upon your life. Hear it. Submit to it. Everywhere the Lord leads you in ministry, it will help you to suffer well. Unfortunately, there is a lot of unnecessary suffering in the life of a pastor. There can be if we mistake our call. There can be the suffering of loneliness if you begin to to imagine or or believe that lie that says that friendship in the church is available to everybody except the man in the pulpit. There is the suffering when uh, your session decides to do that thing and to make that decision that you didn't want them to make and suddenly you find yourself being a champion of a cause you didn't choose and your pride has to take a ride in the back seat. There is Suffering when families leave your church because, I, I don't know, maybe his, his preaching just wasn't as dynamic as it used to be. And we sit and we wonder, well, what, what did I do? Where did I go wrong? How could I gather more people? All of those sufferings show up when we forget what it is the Lord has called us to. He makes us ministers. He makes us servants of his body. And if we neglect our calling, we begin to think that the church exists for us and not the other way around but when you remember God's calling on you, it helps you to suffer the way that you ought to. It helps you to suffer the spite of those people who think uh, that the Bible is outdated and your job is obsolete. It helps you to suffer hours of work preparing sermons so that they can cut to the heart of your people and draw them to Christ. It helps you to suffer the struggle of self mortification so that you can set an example for the church. It helps you to suffer sleepless nights praying for teenagers who still, for whatever reason, have not publicly professed their faith before God's people. And those are things we're suffering for. And that's a ministry worthy of God's calling on you. Inevitably, this is also going to be a ministry committed to God's message through you. Our second point God's message. Now, as much as suffering features in uh, in Paul's discussions of ministry, suffering itself obviously isn't, isn't the point of ministry. We don't need to offer some vicarious sacrifice. The church already has one Savior, and he has fully completed the work of salvation for his people. And so it's not that we go and suffer on behalf of the church so that our suffering can somehow store up a merit for them, and it can be doled out at just the right time. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Suffering isn't actually the point of ministry, although it may very often become a byproduct of it. The point, the objective of being made a minister, verse 25, is to make the word of God fully known. It's true for Paul. It's true for every pastor who's come after him that Christian ministry is proclamational. The pastoral call is a call to declare the truth of salvation that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. You notice the way that that Paul talks about declaring this message. It almost sounds like he's he's zeroing in, he's evoking the thrill that it is to be involved in New Testament ministry. He calls it, verse 26, a mystery. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. That last phrase there, now revealed to the saints, that tells us that, that God's mystery, His message, is not some code that we've got to crack, but it's a solution that God is already giving to us. It's the answer in the back of the book, if you will. If we could flip to the end and see what's the answer to this problem, what's the answer to our problem, the answer to all of humanity's spiritual searching, even the searching of those who deny that they're looking for anything, what's the answer? Well, it's the message of Jesus Christ. Maybe sometime before the pandemic. I don't don't know if they're still doing it. Maybe sometime before the pandemic, uh, you went to one of those escape room experiences. And you know the places, the, the, the kind of place that you go, and you pay somebody else to lock you in a room with six other people that you hope are maybe a little bit smarter than you. Because it's all a puzzle. It's all a race against the clock. The room is filled with, with props and with clues, and the idea is to crack the code to figure out how to get out of the room before the clock runs out. And Paul is saying that's what humanity had been doing for generations apart from God's glorious message revealed to his saints. It had all been a mystery. It had all been a puzzle, all an enigma, a race against the clock to figure out the answer to mortality. The answer to divine justice, the answer to that sense that we can't seem to shake, that we stand guilty in our sins and condemned before the God who made us. And what shall we do? How shall I go to God? a puzzle. Obviously, at times it was a collaborative effort, and, and there were bright points along the way, and there were some answers that seemed to approach something that made some kind of sense. But just imagine the generations. Imagine the ages that spent all of their strength groping the darkness and never even came close to opening the door. Paul is writing to Gentiles here. Imagine if you will, the hopelessness of first century paganism. It was a free-for-all. They had no idea what they were doing, they were making it up as it went along. It was full of magic, it was full of manipulation, it was full of praying to to whatever demon demigod you could conjure up behind rocks and storms and and flashes of lightning. It was a mystery. There was the more philosophical approach, right? And, And that at least sounded impressive. There were teachers and there were schools and there were grand sweeping statements about moral imperatives about the examined life and the virtuous life and the, and the productive life and all of these other things, but even that got pretty old after a while. And in Paul's day, you could find all the restless intellectuals sitting around Athens, we learn in the book of Acts, spending their time in nothing except hearing and telling something new. What is it today? What's the answer du jour? What what are we going to find as we try to crack open this mystery, as we try to answer this question of who we are and what we're doing here, and what is it all about? It was all a mystery. According to their worldviews, the heavens were locked from the other side, and all that could be known about the gods or, or whatever, it all came down to what could be guessed by the poets and the philosophers imagine the joy. Imagine the joy of stepping into that labyrinth of spiritual dead ends and proclaiming to the world the word of the gospel at the very beginning. At long last, God's answer to the human question. God's initiative. His rending of the heavens to come down to us, to come down to us in our sin, and to come down to us in our guilt, to come to us in our shame and in our need. Can you imagine the joy of stepping as a herald into the world lost in darkness and declaring that God has come near in the person of Jesus Christ, that God has made himself known in a Savior, and through his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, he has solved the problem of sin and death. He's opened the door to blessing in the presence of God's glory forever. That's what Paul was called to do. That's his calling. That's what he got to do every day of his life because God had set him apart for that. Can you imagine the joy? Proclaiming God's message. That was his calling. And it's the calling of every pastor worthy of the name. Christian ministry is about declaring God's mystery revealed at last in Jesus Christ. Of course, our society is no less spiritually darkened than it was back then. Perhaps the only difference is that the worldviews and and the philosophies that grab our attention are no longer trying to offer an answer to our questions. They're simply denying that there's a mystery to be solved at all. They're simply looking in the other direction and saying, I don't want to engage with that. I don't see anything helpful over there. I, I don't want to think about these things. Our society is darkened, not because they cannot find God's light, but because they've decided it doesn't exist, and that it's not worth looking for, and still the clock is ticking. Still time and mortality make a meal of us all, and still the Lord calls faithful men to declare his message to a world dying in darkness. Saints of God, mark well the message. God's message is not a method. It's not a program. It's not a, a mode of, of personal reformation. It is not a charitable cause or a social movement. It's not a moral triumph. God's message, the only answer to our human condition of guilt, God's answer is a person. Jesus Christ. He is the gospel of God. Verse 28, him we He goes everywhere saying, we proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel, he tells Timothy. Preach the gospel. Him we proclaim. Jesus Christ is the message of God. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You hear the universal language there. Every person, every person, every person. There's nobody that's too high, that's attained too much, that they don't need this answer from God. There's nobody uh, who can say that we have it and you don't deserve it. It's for everyone. It's God's answer for all of humanity. And this is the message that God calls Andrew to place before us. It is the finished work of the risen Savior. It is Christ, our hope of glory. Christ, our peace with the Father. Christ, our head and our living Lord. As Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, he is God's message through you. So, church, you need to understand this particular calling for Andrew among us. Because in the course of his ministry, Andrew is going to wear a lot of different hats. We'll make sure of that. From time to time, he's going to be a worship leader, and he's going to be an administrator, and he's going to be a counselor to you. He's going to put together events. He's going to teach Bible studies. He's going to lead in various capacities. He's going to engage you and your family in casual conversation. He's going to be a helper. He's going to be a minister of mercy. But the calling that God is placing on Andrew's life is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his prime objective. It ought to be the undercurrent behind every single interaction you have with him. doesn't matter if he's in the pulpit. doesn't matter if he's in your home. This is what his ministry is about. Andrew's task is to help us know and love and follow Jesus more closely. Pray for him. Pray for him that he would lift up Jesus Christ. That God would preach his message through Andrew. And Andrew, for you, our friend J.C. Ryle puts it better than I can. He writes, If Christ crucified does not have his rightful place in your sermons, If sin is not exposed as it should be, and if your people are not plainly told what they ought to be and do in Christ, your preaching is of no use. He puts that in capitals. No use. The grand danger of ministry is that you should succeed in a thousand million meaningless things and leave out that one thing that's necessary. So, brother, preach Christ. God's calling on you is to preach his message. So preach Christ. Thirdly, faithful ministry is about God's power. Now, I need you all to imagine something else for a minute. I need to talk to Andrew. Andrew, now that you are almost ordained, I can finally tell you the last secret of ministry. I've been sworn to secrecy up to this very point, but now you can know but I need you to swear that you're not going to tell anybody else in the church. Okay, ready? Here is the final secret of ordained ministry. The great secret is that it is entirely entirely possible to do all of your pastoral work, all of your preaching, all of your counseling, all of your other stuff. It's entirely possible to do all of it in your own strength. In fact, it's possible to do it and to do it pretty well in your own strength. I know that it doesn't seem that way now because at the beginning ministry seems overwhelming. It seems like something that you could never do on your own but trust me, the more you do it, the easier it's gonna get. And you can figure out routines. you can figure out in your sermon prep, you can, you can get a method, right? You can, you can line out, what did they teach me at Gordon-Conwell? What do I have to do? Well, I have to do this first and then I have to, have to check that. I, you can know which commentaries are good and which ones you shouldn't waste your time on, except to pick up that quote from Calvin so that people know you're still Presbyterian. You can figure out how to write these sermons that's really going, that are really going to resonate with the congregation, and you can do it. You can even make them pretty Christ-centered, and you can do it without ever praying about your preaching. It's possible. You can memorize helpful things to tell people who come to you with spiritual problems. And they'll go away and say, that Andrew, he's so wise and helpful. He's such a godly man. And you can organize your time so that you're where the church expects you so that you're doing what makes them feel good about your ministry. You can do it all. Out of your own reserves of energy and charisma and perhaps nobody but you will know the difference. But know this the moment that you exchange your dependence upon the Lord for your confidence in yourself, your ministry will be a sham. It will be polished. It will be pretty. It will be pleasing to look look at, and it will be a vacuum that consumes whatever is left of spiritual joy and commitment to the church and whatever sense of calling you once had. That is what will happen. It's entirely possible. You can do it. I don't recommend it. Paul says that that's not how gospel ministry is supposed to work. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I think Paul knew a thing or two about personal ability. He knew how easy it is for a competent man to coast through ministry. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John, two of the men that we saw in our reading today, Peter and John preached before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and we're told there that the leaders were amazed at their boldness. Why? Because they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. No one was ever amazed at the things that came out of Paul's mouth because he didn't have that uneducated, uneducated, common background. He was credentialed. (laughs) He was trained. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He had the kind of of intellectual pedigree that opened doors. I think he knew how dangerously complacent a minister can become when he gets used to what he's doing. And that's why he so often speaks of the need to keep his own life and his own labors in check. Notice the language of verse 29. He says, for this I toil. There's our word again that we saw a few weeks ago, agonize. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works Within me. The language there, it's a mix between industrial and athletic. It highlights the kind of a consistent, strenuous effort that's needed to fulfill the calling of pastoral ministry. And Paul says it's not, at least in his case, it's not an effort that comes merely from himself, but from the God who's at work within him. What does it look like to toil, to, to struggle with God's strength and God's power? Well, I think it means a lot more than offering that perfunctory prayer before you begin the public ministries of God. right? Hanging it like a, like a placeholder. See, I'm doing church work now. I've prayed. I've blessed it. That's not what he's talking about. I think he's talking about living in a constant state of prayer. That inner closet life that we find in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, one of the things we often... Uh, forget that when Jesus uh, speaks in the Sermon on the Mount and he warns people, he warns his followers, don't be like those that do their, their deeds of mercy out there to be seen by others. Don't be those that go and only pray when others can hear you. The people in the church that those warnings most apply to are the pastors who can stand in the pulpit and who can offer a prayer and speak a word and give an encouragement and have almost no spiritual life at all behind it. It's a warning, I think. So how does it happen? How does Paul live by by God's strength? Well, I think it means that he lives his entire ministry in this recognition that he is engaged in something that is too great for him. He exhorts the converts, he he resists the false teachers, he, he shepherds the flock, and he does it all out of a sense that he is out of his depth. That unless the Lord should build his house, his human labors are in vain. But actually, that's when ministry becomes a blessing, not just to the congregation, but to the minister. Ministry is a blessing, not when it's smooth, not when it's easy, but when it's difficult. Especially when it's difficult enough to make you admit how insignificant and insufficient you are for the task. That's where spiritual growth happens for the pastor. Because it's not until you're convinced that your own fancy sermons are, are dead on arrival that you begin to pray and to cry out to the God who's able to raise the dead. It's not until you realize that your labors cannot change the hearts of your people that you begin to depend on the Spirit who can turn granite into flesh. It is not until you realize how insufficient you are to spread the aroma of Christ among the saved and the perishing you depend upon the God who makes his ministers sufficient. to Declare the new covenant in Christ. Church of God, this is what you can pray for your pastor. Pray that ministry would be hard. Pray that it would be difficult. Not that he would be crushed beneath the load of it, not that he would be completely overwhelmed unto despair, but, but that he would sense his inadequacy for what he's being called to today so that he would be driven to his knees to pray for himself and his ministry and to pray for you because he realizes that all that he does is meaningless unless the Holy Spirit moves through him and in your hearts. Pray that ministry would be difficult enough that he realizes how insignificant and insufficient he is. Pray that he would be unable to speak or teach or do any of his tasks without crying out to the God who supplies strength to his ministers. Andrew, brother, this is what faithful ministry looks like. It looks like submitting to God's calling, to preach God's message according to god's power may the lord bless you and equip you for the task you're being set apart for today may the lord help us lift up our brother and our pastor in prayer for the sake of the gospel please join me in prayer oh gracious lord we thank you for your calling of men into gospel ministry we thank you for paul who wrote these words we thank you for andrew Pray that our focus would not be upon him, but that through him we would rejoice in you, the one who by your resurrection power lifts dead men and women out of sin and into your glorious light. Thank you, O oh Lord, for the light of the gospel. May you make Andrew a man who proclaims it. Would you help us to receive it faithfully from his mouth, we pray in Christ's name? Amen. Now, I not you stand as we sing together. Uh, from the insert number 164, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Won't you stand as we sing together?